The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John and the letter to the Hebrews. You can find it printed on page 10 of your worship folder. A reading from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he who, of whom I said, He who comes be after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. And now a reading from Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, we ask now that you would meet us in this room. We ask that you would help us to believe that you know us and all of our beauty and all of our imperfection and all of our glory and all of the ways in which some days we're not sure who we are anymore. You're here for all of it. Help us to believe that you are here for all of our lives. Help us to believe that we're in this room right now because you have seen to it. Help us to be present to your presence here, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been well documented, I believe, on Facebook that the Harrell family is a little bit crazy when it comes to Halloween. <laughs> if you have not seen that, friend me and you will see how crazy we are about Halloween. But uh, we go all out. Uh, we have fog, for example. We have the sound of a heartbeat turned up to about 12 on the uh, volume, just boom, 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 boom. Um, yes, we scare children at the Herald <laughs> Haunted Porch, and you may have a problem with that, so we can talk later. Um, but we try to be very gracious because what happens is it turns very joyous because out of the smoke stands Dr. Schatz and Nurse Tipsy. I'm wearing a lab coat, Dr. Schatz is on the coat. And I have these humongous jello shots proclaiming, leave no parent behind. We are here for you, Medicare for all, 
for you, parents. Here it is for the journey ahead. We have an absolute blast on the Harrow Haunted Porch. We have people that drive from all over San Francisco, honestly, who come to the Harrow Haunted Porch. Um, they used to live in our neighborhood or some, or some friend brought them one time. We actually had some city church congregants make the drive over this year as well to check us out. You might want to come check us out next year. It's great. But here's what happens sometimes on the Harrow Haunted Porch. A person will look at me and say, hey, so uh, are you a real doctor? And I say, no, I'm a pastor. As I've said before, that can create a conversation buzzkill. And, uh, but lots of times we get to talking, and they'll say something like this. You know what? I'm not a churchgoer. But I, if I were, I think I want my pastor to do this. Now, there's some superficial interpretation of that comment, right? Like, you know, they, they're seeing me at my jolliest, and as we know, I'm not always jolly. I could have been the person that slammed on my horn when that same guy pulled out in front of me a week previously and said dirty words in my car. That happens sometimes. Um, but there's something else beneath that 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 person is saying. They're saying, you, you're like me in some respect. You, I relate to this in some way. I I don't think I'd ever want to be a friend with a pastor necessarily, but if I were, I think, I think I could actually be friends with you. And we're in this series called Friendship with God right now. And the basic concept of today's sermon is, is if God is like me, maybe we could be friends. If God is like me, maybe we could be friends. Some of you are old enough to remember the 1995, I know, Seems like yesterday for me. The 1995 song, Joan Osborne, remember, What If God Were One of Us? And I'm not going to do what so many pastors do with that song, go through every single lyric and all that kind of thing. A lot of pastors did this back in the 90s, just so you know. But uh, I just love the song in this one spot where it says, just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on a bus trying to find their way home. And the reason I love that is that is right down in the mundane reality of daily life. And the fact of the matter is, God would say, yes, I did that. Jesus was treated like a slob, thought of as a slob. There's many definitions of slob. I'm sure Jesus hits about 10 of them. Jesus himself felt like a stranger in this world, I am sure. People treated him like a stranger, as an outcast, pushed him out. Jesus knows what it's like to try to find his way home. A man who has no place, place to lay his head. Birds have nests, foxes have holes. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, Jesus famously said. And so what we're talking about today, on one hand, is this theological concept of the incarnation. But I want you to hear it as God became a human being in radical solidarity, joining us as us. Joining us as us. As Karl Barth was quick to say, there now needs to be, in the light of Jesus, another attribute added to God, and it's the attribute of humanness. Of humanness. So, what does that matter regarding friendship with God? What does radical solidarity with humanity look like? And we're going to answer that question by looking at this very famous text in John, where John says, The Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us or, or lived among us. So first of all, let's look at it in that way. We're going to look at the Word, became flesh, dwelt among us. First of all, the Word. God, in order to be in solidarity with us, we have to know who God is. What is God like? Some of you here today may be saying to yourself, I don't really want God to be in solidarity with me, to be honest, because I see a lot of scary stuff and I've had some bad experiences. And so the answer to the first question is, what is, it, what is, what is this God like who's going to be standing in solidarity with me as a human being? I need to know that. Before I can trust God to stand in solidarity with me. What version of God are you talking about? What is God like? And so in this passage, what we have is we have God saying, I'm like Jesus. I'm like Jesus. You know, I do premarital counseling. I tell couples, I say, look, you have to be promised, if you're going to go through this, you have to promise three things to be a student of three things. Some of you who have married in this congregation know what I'm about to say. You have to be a student of God, you have to be a student of your spouse, and you have to be a student of yourself. And in order for your spouse to get to really know you, you're going to have to know who you are. Or you're going to remain a mystery to your spouse, even as you sadly have gone this long in life and are still a mystery to yourself. And so, yes, God is a mystery to know. There's no question. I don't, we, don't plan, we don't purport around here to have all the answers figured out exactly. But as Richard Rohr says, mystery does not mean you can't know. It means knowing endlessly. Knowing endless knowability. Because God speaks as to who God is. The word, the logic, the logos. And John, speaking to a group of people, you have to realize who had all these ancient stories, very important to their identity, of having people seeing God, Moses, Abraham, Elijah, Isaiah, Jacob, all of these important stories. And John has the audacity here to lay this on them by saying, no one has seen God. And what John means by this is to say, we now have a primary seeing. We now have a seeing that is not guided by, we might say, the night sky of the moon and stars. But the sun has shone in Jesus. And John radically says in John 14, John 1.18, No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made Him known. So all other seeings of God are now are now subordinate to this seeing of God. Whatever ideas we had before are all subordinate to the supreme revelation of the Word made flesh. So God comes to us in Jesus and says, this is who I am. This is who I am. It's very important to understand this. The Bible is is around 1,200-page book that doesn't introduce the main protagonist until about page 939, let's say. And so we read all of it in light of Christ. And so if this is true, if Jesus is what God has to say, if God is like Jesus, what is Jesus like? Well, I took the time to write down a few things that came to my mind. What is Jesus like? Jesus welcomes the outsider, gives hospitality to the immigrant, prioritizes the poor, never turns away in the face of sinners, but moves toward them in love, tells us to love our enemies, to extend mercy, 
to forgive 70 times 7, has compassion on the multitudes because they were harassed and helpless, saw those who were erased or felt erased, subverted unjust structures, gave dignity to the outcast, told stories of a God being a shepherd who goes after the one lost sheep, told stories of God being a father who receives and embraces the prodigal, Jesus who can be trusted in our anxiety because Jesus himself allowed himself to feel his own emotions. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, who in the face of receiving violence, injustice, and murder from humanity doesn't retaliate but recycles this into love, mercy, and forgiveness. Jesus perfectly revealing the heart of God confronts the sin of the world in this way. I forgive you. Want to be friends with God? Want to be friends with someone like that? So the first thing is, is this is a God who's going to be standing in radical solidarity with humanity. i got to know what this God is like. And so God speaks and communicates and tells us. So secondly, it says that God became flesh. Not because God was lonely or not because God was needy, but God became flesh and took on human humanity Because God is loving. Because God is loving. And to love, listen, you know this from all the people that have ever really had an impact on you. To love someone else is to enter into the shared humanity. Not just in the big sense of the word, I love everybody. But I'm talking about in that very problematic person sitting across from you. In other words, God is empathizes with us. God empathizes with us. I'm going to play a two-minute video right now to just give us a common understanding together of what is meant by the word empathy. Daniel? So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, (laughs) it's bad, uh (laughs) uh-huh. Uh, no. You want a sandwich? Um, Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time, because you know what? Someone just shared something with us, that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. 
We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. That was Brene Brown, and you can Google that, Brene Brown Empathy, and that video will come up. Feeling with another person. Listening to, considering taking their perspective in. Fueling connection. This is the power of empathy. And the power of the gospel is that you have a God who comes to you and says, you've been broken. I know what that feels like. You're suffering. I know what that feels like. You've been betrayed. I know what that feels like. You've been rejected. I know what that feels like. You've been abandoned. You're lonely. And God and Jesus Christ shares all of this with you and stands in solidarity with you. When we invite you to give yourself to God, it's the God who empathizes, who sees you, who listens, and who knows fully what it's like to be human in the human experience. Who knows that the anger that you hold right now will reveal itself as grief. And God will stand with you in that loss and that grief. You know, it's this really great story. This is going to put me in overtime with the sermon, but that's all right. You've kind of stuck with me for a second. But there's a story in the book of Mark which just so emphasizes this, where Jesus, Jesus is, this is when Jesus is still popular, all right? This is before everything starts to go down. So the multitudes are everywhere around him. He's being pressed from every side. And there's this one guy, a powerful synagogue leader by the name of Jairus. And Jairus works his way to Jesus with all of his power and all of his privilege and gets in front of Jesus where other people maybe couldn't have. And he says, my daughter is sick unto death. Please do something for her. And so Jesus starts to walk towards them. So imagine all the crowds are pressing in everywhere. And Jesus feels something. A woman had touched his garment. A woman who had had a, what the Bible describes as hemorrhaging for 12 years. Do you realize what an outcast that would make her? She couldn't even go in the temple to worship. She couldn't be allowed access to anything. And it was such a prevalent idea that Jesus was constantly turning over throughout his ministry that if a person was sick, it's because they obviously sinned in some way. So she's been shunned and ostracized. Nobody listens to her. Nobody cares about her. And Jesus feels her grab his garment. And it says powerfully in the book of Mark, it says that the power, he felt the power leave him. And he made it his priority in that moment to find who touched his garment. Remember, somebody's dying unto death, somebody's daughter. And Jesus stops and finds the person who hasn't had a voice in 12 years. Talk about erased and being invisible. 
And this is the beauty of the Mark account in particular. It says that Jesus stopped. Jesus heard her tell her whole truth. Jesus is the star attraction in this, in this little moment. Anybody he's talking to, everybody else is watching that. And Jesus allows this woman to tell her whole truth to the entire community. He empathized. He saw her. He made sure everybody else saw her. If you're Jairus in this story, you might be like tapping your toe. But perhaps this is a lesson for Jairus as well. Jesus healed her. Jairus' daughter did actually die. And Jesus rose her from the dead. The point of the story that for this is we see a God of empathy in the life and ministry of Jesus. And if you start looking for it, you'll see it everywhere. Last, dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. God communicates who God is. I'm like Jesus. God empathizes with our humanity, stands in solidarity with it, and last, dwells among us. So this is what the Spirit of God, I believe, led me to write down as I was writing this sermon. I didn't just say things I normally would, like, you know, God pursues us in love. That's true. That's good. I love it. God tabernacled among us. That's, that's a big one among preachers to talk about how dwelt is the word tabernacle here. God's presence goes. It's all good and true. But what I came up with was this. God stays. God stays. God does not cut and run. God does not cut and run because you became problematic. God does not cut and run because you aged. God does not cut and run because you lost your job. God does not cut and run because you got diagnosed. God does not cut and run because you changed your mind. God does not cut and run because you became difficult or because you disappointed people. God, are you ready? God doesn't ghost you. That's what we do, actually, to one another all the time, right? Let's just admit it. But God doesn't do that to us. Church, and when I say that, I'm, I'm almost like a, I'm borrowing from the Pentecostal preachers here when I say church. So I'm talking right now to people who are longtime members of churches, been to church a lot, identify as Christian, when I say we have to do better on this with one another. There are people right now in this room, I know because I hear the stories, and they are terrified. And they have had the courage to come to church. And the reason they're terrified is because the previous church they were at, they were ghosted. It is unbelievable what you can get ghosted over. You decide that you've changed your mind on something. You decide you read the Bible a little bit differently now. You decide that you want to marry this person and not everybody approves of that marriage. You come out of the closet. You, you have a baby when other people didn't want you to have a baby. It could be any number of things, big and small, and you experienced it. You experienced 
ghosting. Maybe losing an entire community. And it has done almost irreparable damage. That's why I say it's a work of courage for you to be in this room right now. And we have got to do better about these kinds of things. When I gather with pastors, sometimes one of the number one topics we talk about is what ghosting has done to the community around them. And how has it impacted them? So we can do better, friends. And I'll, maybe I'll talk more about this when we get to friendship with neighbors. But the reason I bring it up, the reason I bring it up is because for many of us in this room right now, it feels to you like God has ghosted you. And that feeling may have started, probably started, when you were ghosted by people in your church community. And I bring it up because of that, and I bring it up because of another reason. Because one of the primary ways that God wants to be present in your life, to reassure you that God will never ghost you in your life, is through other people. Sometimes a breakthrough in a pastoral conversation goes like this. I, I had this problem, and nobody will understand me, and nobody cares about this, and I'm in disarray, etc. I don't feel like God loves me anymore. And after an hour or so of speaking, to be able to say to that person, can you begin to believe that God in this moment is loving you through this conversation? That God saw to it that somehow you would wind up in this office at this moment and we'd be having this conversation. So to the degree that we, as a community, stay with each other, listen to each other, empathize with each other, be known by each other, we will experience the solidarity of God standing with us. Who dwells with us. It wants to be close to you. doesn't want to be anonymous to you. Again, this is one of the core messages of the gospel, that God is with and for us in birth, in life, in suffering, in death, in new life. God is for us and with us. So God stands in radical solidarity with us, with humanity, communicating what God is like so that you might trust that you could actually be helped by this God being in solidarity with you. Because frankly, you've had people who said, I want to be in solidarity with you, and they just ran right over you. That happens. And that God empathizes with you and knows your story and is not afraid of your pain and your sorrow and invites you to join God in this. And God stays. God dwells among us. If all of that is true, I invite you into friendship with God. Now, let me wrap this up by saying this. How do we stoke this? Here's the thing about growing in a Christian spirituality. It's never right. It never works. It never envisions. It never invites you to be completely passive. It invites you into embodied practices, embodied practices to participate with God in your growing a deeper spiritual relationship with God. 
And so as part of this series, we don't just want to get up here and proclaim things like this. We want to say, this is how we can begin to more clearly orient our heart towards God that we might experience a deeper spirituality with God, a deeper friendship with God. And so you probably all got one of these cards, right? This is just a beginning thing, all right? It's not like, uh, boy, and this card is the key to all of life. It is a way for us to attempt to actually be on the same page as we go through this experience of the three friendships. It's an attempt for us together to say, I'm actually going to embody these practices in my life. And so what you'll find in here, and more so if you go online, you will find ways in which we want to do this together. CityChurchSF.org backslash FWG, Friendship with God. And you'll have an entire PDF there that talks about this card and how we might use it. How we might take, and it just has a couple of things here. Habits, you know, small habits. We know this sociologically. Small habits over time can provide and, and, and create lasting, significant impact in our lives. And so we have simple things like when you wake up in the morning, don't reach for your phone. But take a moment to ground yourself. Take a moment just to put your feet on the ground. To sit in silence. Like walking. I have a friend who has an entire ministry of walking. It's called Life at Three Miles Per Hour. He would say it's actually the way we're designed to live our lives. And what we miss when we always are avoiding three miles per hour in our neighborhood, in our city, in the life of the person we're taking the walk with. And to pray, but to pray real prayers. And that's why we say the Psalms of Lament, because most of the Psalms were pretty much based on lament. Which is another way of saying be honest in your prayers. That God can handle all of the stuff we might bring to that moment. To read Scripture in a listening fashion, not just a data accumulation fashion. Where we listen, where we meditate, we take time to chew on what we've read, to, to, to pray in the midst of the reading. This is all Lectio Divina, which is a way of tasting and seeing and extracting flavor from what we've read. From even I would even add journaling as a way of getting some of this out of us and onto a page where we might reflect all of these. So join us in embodied practices. What would it look like if all of us were doing this together? What would it mean for our lives in our community? Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you for this passage of Scripture that we can read. Thank you that we can read that you're a high priest who, it says sympathizes, but based on what we've read about today, really is talking about empathy, empathizes with us, and that we can come to you to find grace in our need always. You're that kind of friend. So help us to believe that the greatest thing, the smartest thing, the wisest thing, the sanest thing, the safest thing, the most life-giving thing might just be for us to trust you with our lives and help us to see in Jesus the ultimate example of how committed you are to our healing and to the redemption of this whole world. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.